Hello, welcome back to Anime on the Sea to Sky. It's been quite a busy couple of weeks considering that Anime Expo just finished wrapping up over the past couple of days, and there have been a plethora of bits and pieces of new juicy info that have been coming out relating to different premieres, different seasons, different films, different projects that some have already been in the works for quite a bit, some this is the first time we're hearing of it. But at least before I get to those pieces of news, there were a couple of other projects that ended up getting some announcements on what their future endeavors were. The first one specifically is that Ranking of Kings is going to be getting a new film. Now, if I would have to guess, this is going to be a sequel to the basically season 1.5 that we ended up getting that I'll talk about later in the episode of the previous season, because we did finally end up getting a few bits and pieces of content in the season that were able to be taken place after the first season had ended. We don't necessarily know how much more space we have before it catches up to the ongoing material, but at least until then, it's nice knowing that in the future, Wit Studio is going to have the opportunity to bring one of their best projects over to theaters. So I legitimately can't wait to get more information out of that. Now, for series in particular, I mean, Natsume's Book of Friends is going to be getting another season. I believe it's the seventh now, as it celebrates its 15th anniversary since it has been released. But in terms of something that was also about 15 years back, probably outside of Anime Expo, the biggest announcement that we ended up getting, or at least personally for me, is that we are going to be getting a new Spice and Wolf TV anime. Now, this seems like, even though it's going behind, well, for better or worse, it is Studio Passion, which hasn't necessarily been at the top of the food chain whenever it comes to studios and adaptations that they do, but what they are going to be giving us is what is likely a going to be a Spice and Wolf Brotherhood sort of scenario, because this is going to be a remake because this is basically going to be a remaster of the original series that is probably going to go past 24 episodes. I would imagine not necessarily Brotherhood, but more of like a Fruits Basket, a modern Fruits Basket adaptation sort of deal, since Fruits Basket, the original adaptation that they did, only got about 25 episodes or so, and then went for a open-ended anime sort of conclusion. Spice and Wolf kind of got that same bit, where we ended up finishing off at a awkward part 24 episodes in. You know that in the future going forward that... Lawrence and Hollow are going to be continuing adventuring together, but we didn't necessarily get any sort of conclusion. And in the 2010s, we finally ended up getting that conclusion as the story, at least the main story, and not the sequel to the spinoff, had already reached its foregone conclusion by that point. So the fact that they're going to go and probably condense a bit of the 24 episodes that we ended up getting back in the 2000s and then continue onwards, I would not be surprised if, say, we get about... You know, the same deal that Fruits Basket got, which is about 50 episodes on this case, but, I mean, Fruits Basket got, I believe, 61. So there's more than enough speculation to be made about where the series is going to go, but regardless, there is a beginning and there is an end with this story that is already set out, and so if they're going to be re-announcing a new Spice and Wolf project that is going to be coming out in 2024, the only thing that I can think of is that they will do the entire story. So I'm legitimately excited to see that debut at some point next year. And then one of the spicier announcements that they ended up getting, considering that I've heard bits and pieces of the story coming out over the past couple of years through memes, through clips, and through manga panels, is that Gushing Over Magical Girls is going to be getting an anime adaptation at some point in 2024. And... The consensus about this is that it's going to be as spicy as interspecies reviewers, the anime in this case, and not the manga, where we don't necessarily know how far they're going to be going, because it's a very out-there, etchy comedy where the villainous, which has kind of been a little more of a common theme over the past couple of years, that instead of having either magical girls or isekais, we're not necessarily going from the main character's perspective, we are going from the main antagonist's perspective, either through a villainous or through an enemy magical girl that she is going to have to go through and combat some of them. The question is, how far into the sexual aspect are they going to be going with this series? Because from the panels that I've seen, they go pretty far and pretty deep into the conflicts for this. So I don't know how much they're going to be able to get away with, but considering that this is going to be getting an adaptation anyways, I don't really know 
what the response is going to be like when it comes out next year, but at the very least, you know it's going to be spicy. So at least over the weekend, we got a plethora of announcements leading into projects or debuts or films, video games, anything related to the anime medium that has any kind of adaptation or any kind of new project, that's necessarily what they're going for, considering that you got premieres and you got announcements for Eminence and Shadow Season 2, you got a Hulk premiere, there's going to be new anime stores opening up in California this summer, the J Novel Club is going to be adding more novels, which in this case is going to be a huge boon for a buddy of mine because they're going to be creating Ascendance of a Bookworm audiobooks. There's stuff on High Dive, there's announcements by Family, there's Jujutsu Kaisen, there's Naruto and Boruto, I don't necessarily give a shit, and a lot of projects coming out of MAPPA. But at least for the ones in particular that I was interested in, a lot of it did happen around the trigger panel this weekend, considering that we finally got a release date for their next big project, Delicious in a Dungeon, or Dungeon Meshi as most people know it by, that is getting a release date of January 2024 next year on Netflix. And I will admit that I know that Netflix is really shitty whenever it comes to lining up production schedules or giving an ample amount of publicity to the large titles that they're able to get underneath their umbrella. JoJo's has, has never been the same since parts 5 and 6 ended up arriving on their platform. But considering the quality of the product that they're going to be adapting as well, the fact that it's being done by Studio Trigger, I am extremely excited to see what Dungeon Meshi is going to be able to bring to the table next year. And the other big thing that they ended up getting is that it seems like the shell company that Studio Gynax has been running under for the past several years to keep whatever properties they have under the belt that they used to have, they're finally just slowly letting go pieces and pieces of all the other projects that they ended up doing back in the 2000s, considering that the original guy is like Imaishi, is finally having the opportunity to take back the things that he was able to work on with such passion back in the days, but wasn't able to acquire when they ended up making their new studio trigger back in the early 2010s. But the two most recent ones that they were finally able to acquire, one of which that we already knew, Panty and Stocking is going to be getting a sequel that's going to come out either at some point next year or the year after, and we they also ended up getting the rights back to the Gren Lagan films that they ended up making a year or two after the original show concluded. And so they're going to be doing theatrical releases of both of the Gren Lagan films, and that's going to be heading out to Taiwan, Japan, and thank goodness, North America as well. I assumed initially that this was just going to be a Japanese exclusive release so they could kind of gauge how people think about it because it has been 15 years since they've had the opportunity to use any of these properties or since they were concluded. But the fact that they're also just going to go for broke since they believe that they have enough of an audience to make this a successful endeavor, it's also going to be coming to North America as well. We're expecting to get these films out in North America this winter, but the first movie is going to be opening in Japan on August 25th, and the second movie is going to be opening on September 22nd. So, quite an interesting gap between the two of them, but legitimately, if you were able to condense both of these into like a three-and-a-half-hour ridiculously dynamic event people would go through and buy in droves. But to be fair, if you can have one film and two films, twice the amount of tickets, twice the amount of money, I can totally understand why they would go through and have these as splits instead of making it one grand event. But I'm legitimately excited. I have watched both of the movies, but most of which was just kind of like, ah, like how much of this did they actually change? And it doesn't have as much depth as the previous one because there's only so much time that you could fit into two films worth, but the spectacle of these two films, having the opportunity to go see those in a theatrical screening event, gets a huge recommendation for me. But now the biggest shock that legitimately came out hours before I ended up recording the episode was so fucking out there, and I thought I was having a stroke considering that Warner Brothers Japan is teaming up with Wit Studios to create an original anime series based on the Suicide Squad that is also an isekai. We are getting Suicide Squad isekai. What? I mean, legitimately, if this wasn't done by Studio Wit, I would laugh myself out of the room and never touch this again. But the fact that this is being written by the same dudes that did Vivifluorite, being directed by one of the guys behind Jujutsu Kaisen, as well as a few episode directorial credits for Gintama, 
and a lot of the team that is going underneath the Wit Studio umbrella. <laughs> I'm gonna have to watch this. I'm, I'm not so much of a DC guy. It was around, around the time that DC was trying to make their extended universe sort of deal. I was already kind of burnt out on the majority of the superhero stuff that was coming out of Marvel, so, I mean, the new Flash just came out, and apparently that was kind of middling. People still enjoyed it for the most part, but wow, did it not make as much money as they were expecting it to. I mean, the entire debacle and tragedy that surrounded the Justice League premiere, as well as the fact that they were trying to put out as much content as Marvel was at the time, when people were already feeling the fatigue, I just have not jumped into basically any of the DC pieces when regardless of any kind of world that they're trying to create. But it's like, haha, this is anime, so I guess I'm gonna have to go watch it is kind of a little bit of a ridiculous double standard, but still, the team behind this project is so stacked that legitimately I would be surprised if this flops. But I am actually excited to go forward and kind of see what they're gonna be able to do with this, so you know what? Only time will tell, but I trust Wit Studio, so I'll give him that. So now leading into the chunk of the episode, we finally, at least for me, today was the final episode of the final show that I was watching throughout the course of the season. And this one in particular was Insomniacs After School. It is definitely somewhere on the list. I'll get to that at some point. Before I do talk about most of these shows, I will give spoiler warnings in particular for Demon Slayer Season 3, Birdie Wing Season 2, and Gundam Witch for Mercury Season 2, because... I will have to go more in-depth for me to talk about my personal feelings with these shows in particular. So at the very least, when I'll, I'll give a little bit of a heads up leading into that, but besides the point, I guess to make this a little simpler, I will go in ascending order for the shows that I ended up watching and the shows that I kind of just gave away and didn't really think too much about in general. But at the very least, this was one of the most surprising seasons I've seen, because Initially, I'm pretty sure I was only going to be watching, let me see, I was going to be watching 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. So, yeah, never mind. 7 shows was necessarily off the bat, but the fact that it went from 7 to 11 that quickly was a legitimate surprise for me. But considering that normally spring and fall are where the majority of the heavy hitters go whenever it comes to seasonal anime, that shouldn't necessarily come to a shocker too much to me. But I digress. So, at the very bottom, this was... this was tough, because I didn't think it was shit, but the Megumin spin-off series that came out this season wasn't really that funny to me, because that was the whole case where it's just, she is the most popular character inside of the Konosubi universe, but the same joke, especially when most of those jokes come from behind the Crimson Demon Village and how ridiculous and eccentric they are, it, I, the jokes got old really quickly. And unfortunately, by really quickly, by the time they left the village in episodes four or five, it, I was just, at some, I should have just dropped it because the only big thing to come out of this season was the fact that there's going to be a season three announcement for Konosuba. So at the very least, you ended up getting that, but I don't know, the jokes really ran thin. It got a chuckle out of me here and there per episode, but if I'm looking for one minute of good comedy out of 24, it's just, I don't know, man. It, it was probably the biggest letdown, e even though I had barely any expectations, and because the last Konosuba project that I ended up watching was the Crimson Demons back in 2018? Really? That long, huh? Jesus Christ. I was not expecting it to have been five years, but yeah, here we are. And yeah, I guess that was mostly just because I hadn't gotten so much of it as of late, and at the end of the day, I'm excited for a third season with the original cast, but yeah, this one was just kind of like, not so much of a good engagement. I mean, Megabean was the main character, sure, but is she not like in the majority of the jokes and one of the better ones inside of the main series anyways? So yeah, I don't know. It's not garbage, but I will call it pretty bad considering that as a comedy show, if you're just going to follow one joke and not necessarily build on too much of that, it's just, no, it was definitely not for me. And speaking of things that definitely wasn't for me towards the end of the season, holy shit. This is probably my least favorite season of Demon Slayer. It just didn't really pick up a lot of momentum. It got us into the fighting around episodes three or four, but the way it dragged throughout the majority of its run, I was 
I I don't know. I was legitimately flabbergasted and <laughs> to put to put it very simply, angry. I fucking hated it. I watched the final episode with a buddy of mine, considering that it's like, oh, it's going to be a 45-minute finale. So it's just kind of like, yeah, let's make an event out of it and let's just watch it together. The the entire last 30 minutes of that episode was legitimately painful to watch. It felt like the show was unraveling every single idea that it had left, and it came up so short you might as well have taken a shot off the tee on a golf course and the ball went behind you it was just so fucking bad it was just such a horrific end to this season where normally in a demon slayer season well considering that the first season is around episode 18 but then you had the final fight of the infinity train you had the final fight of the entertainment district to the season that it was yeah, legitimately painful. The more and more the quote-unquote action went on, like, you can't even give a standout moment for this season, like so many others that have come before it. The It's, it's legitimately difficult. You had Tanjiro go Sun Hashira in that 1v4 moment, and nothing else came close to that. And comparatively to the other heights that this show has made inside those big moments, even Tanjiro going quote-unquote sicko mode, that was, by comparison, so low to the floor with everything else that it's supposed to be in the same crowd as. It just wasn't necessarily going through. People were hoping, I mean, I was hoping that uh, Kanahanazawa was able to, like, make a little bit more out of the character of Mitsuri, but considering that she is one of the only two female Hashira in this entire group and her entire motivation which changed to be better sure by the end of the show but the fact that her entire motivation is that so she was stronger as a kid I just want to find a husband and settle down and it's and it was just okay so what else it's like I've got this cool ribbon dancing sword which to be fair is a really sick weapon but wow they really just don't give a shit about women in this show do they where it's just kind of like, sure, people are still simping for Shinobu years after she has made her debut, but they've literally given her nothing these past three seasons. And the fact that the only other, like, female Hashira in this is she, her only motivation is to find a man, which was a good joke initially, where it's just kind of like, ah oh, man, I'm gonna train to become the strongest so I can find a strong man and fall in love with a strong man and have a family life with a strong man. But she's stronger than literally 99% of the men, where it's just kind of like she's suffering from success. That was kind of cool for the first joke. The fact that it's her entire character up until the point where it's like, oh yeah, no, because I'm strong, I have the opportunity to protect the weak. Thanks for reminding me that I can do that. Is her biggest character change? That was just, oh god, they really do not give a shit about any of the female characters inside of this series. Specifically, oh my god, Nezuko's entire reveal in this season was probably the shittiest character decision and story decision that they could have made because as it was happening i literally could not keep my mouth shut considering it was just one of the shittiest ideas through the rest of it where it was like oh no she's running out into the sun to point at somebody, which means she's going to die, which then puts Tanjiro in the position to either sacrifice people in order to keep his sister safe, and then his sister makes the decision for him to go help them as she is apparently going to die in the sun towards the rest of it. So it's like, okay, okay. So there are two outcomes to this, and both of them are shit, where it's A, Nezuko fucking dies, and Tanjiro basically loses his entire motivation for the rest of the story to continue. And literally, he'll he'll be promoted to Hashira, but for what to what end? For what purpose? Is he just gonna be angry at the demons now? And so he's going to try and get vengeance for his sister? No, he's too much of a pacifist. And so they're doing this whole fucking montage of Nezuko throughout the course of the story, and I'm thinking, oh fuck, she's gonna live. She is going to conquer the sun for no fucking reason something no demon has ever done in this world's entire history and she's just gonna break the story open in the worst way possible because now somehow 
Muzan has... Oh, we'll get to Muzan in a second. Somehow he has telepathy vision that now knows that Nezuko... Like, he can see Nezuko across the fucking country. Kind of like fucking Last Jedi Force communication. But he can see that and realize that a demon for the first time in history has conquered the sun. And now she's less of a character and more of a MacGuffin. Because now, apparently, if Muzan is able to consume her flesh, then he will somehow be able to conquer the sun now? It's just so fucking ridiculous. But for some reason, the show decides to keep her in a childlike mental state. She can barely talk. She has the communication ability of an infant. Why? Why not give her some agency, some opportunity? Now they want to keep her for... like She already has the Moe. Like... As everybody in the entire show has consistently, it's like, oh my god, she's so cute. She's the cutest thing of all time. It's like, okay, great. She can't even talk. And now that she can talk, because she doesn't have the fucking mouthpiece anymore, she just has the communication skills of a toddler for no reason. Like, give her something to do. Because now she's just going to be goo goo gaga, like, baby energy. And she's just going to be hunted by Muzan, not because she's a strong fighter, not because she's a threat, but because she's a literal fucking MacGuffin that everybody's going to have to protect now so Muzan doesn't come in and eat her. So, okay, Muzan. <laughs> what a fucking turn of events for this guy. He's, he's threatening, yes. He's supposed to be threatening at this point. But considering that he was just a noble that got a mysterious disease as he was young, and he's not going to live to the age of 20. Because he has the disease, he hates humanity and wants to kill everybody. Honestly, I would see that, because the doctor that was going through was trying to give him experimental drugs to kind of, where it's like, oh yeah, no, this noble lets me into his home at, at that point in time if you know, the drugs work, the drugs work, and I become rich, and I have, like, this perfect, you know, powdered medicinal formula to, like, help more people in need. And then worst case scenario, it's like, ah, fuck, this dude just drops dead. All right, it's all right. Uh, I'll just move on to somebody else and try a different formula. But the fact that Muzan just axes him, like, just walks up behind him with a fucking garden shear and cuts him down in the head weeks after he kills him, the drugs start working, and that is the first demon. Like, that's the first demon. He hates humanity, he can't go in the sun, so I guess he's more like a Jojo vampire than he is more of, like, a regular demon. But the fact that, for some reason, I, I guess it, the only reason this makes sense is because the dude, the one major blue flower lily that is the key ingredient to make this serum work, the fact that he didn't write any of that shit down in any of his notes inside of his laboratory and he just keep kept it in his head okay as a trade that's a pretty good idea but you had no fucking idea if this thing worked so like why the fuck would you not keep that because now muzan is literally just going to consistently wander the edges of the earth only in the nighttime to try and find this one thing that would help him conquer the sun and for some reason this random chick that he infected hundreds upon hundreds of years later, suddenly turns into somebody who can withstand the sun, and I'm like, what the actual fuck is this? And like I said before, if he was tortured and experimented on, I could totally understand his hatred for humanity and his distrust for any other person inside of his life, but no, he was just born fucking angry, even though he was a noble, and he had life better than like 99% of the people inside of Japan at that time, he had it good, and he still fucking hated everything. Like, he just, he woke up and chose violence. Except he couldn't be violent because his body was so weak. But for no fucking reason, he's angry all the time and fucking hates humanity. It's like, oh yeah, well, he's a noble, and because the nobles are just so fucked in the head, even though they have everything, they don't really believe it. It's like, dude, then actually just put that in some point of his dialogue, because they didn't say shit about why he was so fucking angry in the first place. So the fact that this dude, like I said, if he was tortured and experimented on, then you could legitimately have a reason for him for his hatred. But no, he just hates humanity, and he is going to live in the shadows for the rest of eternity until he finds a way to conquer, literally conquer the sun. Same deal as JoJo's. He wants to conquer the sun, and that is his last major enemy that he has to face. But oh my god, like, he just is such a fucking shitty villain now that more context has been given to his life. So now the characters are mostly shit, the villain is shit, yeah, he's 
intimidating, but that's only because he is so ridiculously powerful that they had to give you a reason to fear him as the antagonist. I don't know. I just want to get over this, but yeah, in general, this was the weakest season of all of Demon Slayer. And considering we didn't have Inosuke and we didn't have Zenitu, I thought it was going to be so much better because we didn't have those two in our lives. But without them, it turned into the worst season of the show. And that is a fucking accomplishment based on what we've seen before. So, oh boy, for better, uh, yeah, it's for better or worse, I'm locked in. Like, I know Demon Slayer's concluded. I know the story is over. But now that I still need like 24 to 36 more episodes of this shit to go, it's like I'm already too deep. So I'm going to have to watch this shit to the end. God damn it. Um, something that I have a lot less to talk about, um, Ancient Magic Bride Season 2. It has been three years or so since the last bit of content we ended up getting out of this, through the OVAs, after the double core first season that we ended up getting. I kind of enjoyed it, and then it just fell off the radar. It was not necessarily something I could recommend as a romance, it wasn't necessarily something I could recommend as an action show. I do what... I did remember from, and thankfully it still goes pretty well nowadays, is basically its entire setup and history and relationship to Gaelic mythology and ancient pieces of European history, as well as the storytelling that gives it that incredibly unique sort of vibe. So going back onto it, it was a fine season. There's going to be another part to this, so I will continue to watch it because it does kind of end in the middle of a conflict that hasn't been resolved in these first 12 episodes. So I don't know if this is going to be coming out in the fall or the winter of next year, but regardless, I will still continue to watch it because it would, but it was fine. It was totally fine. Something that I'm surprised that I enjoyed a lot more than I would have expected was Dr. Stone's third season. I really did enjoy having Ryusui become more of a main character through the rest of this, considering that, yes, he's arrogant and greedier than everyone else, but he is a great addition to an already dynamic and eccentric cast. So I was kind of surprised at how short, considering that we only ended up getting an one episode fewer than I would have expected, since, I mean, we're going to be moving forward and going into the second half. I thought they would have been able to complete more with the time that they were allotted, but at least in this case, it's sitting up for a good split core that I believe is going to be making its return back in fall of this year, so we'll only be able to wait at this point, because, I mean, it's more Dr. Stone. I'm really still enjoying how much more information and new discoveries that they can put into the rest of it and still make it not only interesting, but engaging for the audience consistently over the several seasons that they have amassed. So now, at least for Birdie Wing, uh, yeah, with the spoilers in this, I was just really hoping that we could get a little bit more of the first season's eccentricity, because it was so off the wall and ridiculous that it was able to make watching a anime about golf one of the most boring spectator sports imaginable, and made it dynamic and crazy and an incredibly fun watch. And if the first season was more akin to an 80s, 90s action flick, then the second season was more akin to, say, like an Indian or Bollywood soap opera. Because most of the conflict came through in regular, real-world golf scenarios. So not too much of the stuff that ended up coming back into the underground world, although we did end up getting a couple of moments of that, it just didn't necessarily keep up with the same pace that the first season set. And to top it all off, this isn't the first show that ended up feeling like it had a rushed ending. They would have definitely benefited to at least giving a bit more context and a bit more time to just flesh out the proceedings and the conclusions to the characters that we ended up getting, because it was a legitimate shock to see how much they were able to stuff in the last episode and a half, only for everything to be resolved in the end. And by everything, I mean everything. To the point where the disease is cured, Eve's golf license is reinstated, she still technically won and is now the best golfer in the world besides Aoi, and it's just, oh yeah, phenomenal, they're both 15, 16, you know, anime rules dictate that teenagers are the most impressive specimens on the planet. But it's just... Yeah, no, the, uh, the second season for sure was not necessarily too much um, of an improvement, unfortunately. The only reason why I call it a downgrade, because they tried to keep up the same sort of manic energy and pace as the first season did, but you can't live up to 
underground, several million dollar bet, life on the line, sudden death elimination, exploding robot arm, RPG to politicians revolving around underground golf bets is just, you can't live up to that by just going into a more like standard route where it's just, oh, her body can't keep up with it, so she's going to have to train. Oh no, you might be sisters. So this flirty will-they-won't-they they romance between the two of them that is, at the end of the day, no more than just a friendship to help them grow stronger by competition, just doesn't really feel like it's one of the more satisfying ways to kind of end that sort of relationship. Maybe they'll go forward in the future to kind of see, like, what they'll be able to go through. At the very least, they'll be very close to running throughout the rest of it, but it's just that through the rest of it all, it's just everything was wrapped up way too cleanly, and the second season itself decided to go for a much more, not necessarily realistic, but a, but a more grounded, I guess, sort of style of the show, which didn't, which wasn't the reason why any of us got into this in the first place. We're not looking to just watch golf, and the only difference here is that they shout out their special attacks whenever they drive off of the tee or trying to make an approach shot. You could do that with any specific show. It's just that when you're talking about golf compared to every other sports anime in existence, you just need a lot more than that. The first season had that unique spark, and while the second season tried to ham it up a bit and still keep things a little more eccentric, it certainly wasn't able to go and keep up with the same kind of energy that the first season was able to grab us with. So at the end of the day, Birdie Wing was a show that near that did the impossible and basically just made a anime about golf entertaining and, for the most part, an enjoyable experience. But in terms of the other show where it was a will-they-won't-be lesbian romance, we end up getting the conclusion to Gundam Witch for Mercury. And the exact same thing with the exact same problems, this show just ended in a lot quicker in a much quicker manner than I would have expected any of these to be related to. Considering that we, and it's the same deal, the last two episodes of both of these shows happened, and it's just like, that's it? Everything's like wrapped up in a nice bow, capitalism is no longer going to fuck with the cultural and conflicts between Earth and Spatians, nope, everything is just totally fine, all of the major companies are totally going to be, you know, reprimanded for their actions, and they're going to have to deal with judicial proceedings that are going to be lasting probably a decade based on the amount of damage that they caused, and yes, the initial steps towards bridging the gap between Spatians and how Earth has been treated and left essentially to just rot, the initial steps were taken under Mirarine's guidance, but it just seems like there's not really too much else that can go. This, this is the conclusion that you would have expected. I was just thinking that this was going to take another 10 to 11 episodes to go through. Considering that the Galactus Space Force that was overseeing the majority of the proceedings after Prospera becomes a catalyst for multiple war crimes in the midst of it, she just is allowed to go and live back on Earth in a nice countryside with her pseudo-daughter and her new wife. Which, to be fair, the one thing that I can definitely applaud towards this show is that even though it could have so easily gone with another anime tragic lesbian relationship, which happens much more often than you think, whenever any kind of legitimate relationship between two male leads or two female leads, they're not necessarily the tragic lesbian character, just the tragic gay character in general. Whenever they have the opportunity to go and have a long-standing relationship in an anime to actually get together and become a family, or at least, to the very least, partners, there is some point in the show where they always find a way to just not remove them from the picture entirely, but just kill them off. There are so many shows through this piece that legitimately does not want there to be a happy gay relationship end up towards the end of the story. And so the fact that Saleta survives, marries Miorina, even though they don't really show it off as much as they could have, she legitimately gets a happy gay ending towards these two characters, and they can go forward and build a better future with each other. And that is extremely rare in these cases. Although, to be fair, I've been 
seeing a, a couple more pieces, at least in recent media, where that wasn't the case, you could argue that the relationship between Eve and Owie and Birdie Wing will lead up towards that. But then, of course, as passive as anime is, whenever it goes towards homosexual relationships, they never really give the conclusive evidence that, yes, these two are a couple, yes, these two are partners, and yes, these two will be happy with each other. And that was kind of... Like, the only reason why it, I, I felt a little off towards the ending is that it took me a while to realize, it's like, like wait, are they legitimately married? And it was because I didn't notice that they only shared, like, a frame. Okay, not necessarily a frame. Like, two seconds of Miorine having a ring on her finger and Suleta having a ring on her finger. They just... It was less than three seconds of screen time between the two of them, and so... I'm glad that they legitimately gave conclusive evidence that, yes, these two ended up getting married in the end, so it wasn't just a complete bait-and-switch based on the premise that the show introduced early on, but considering that the only reason why it was just kind of like, oh, well, considering that at the end, Miorine picks Saleta up and she takes her hand, they both go for their dominant hands, I guess, which makes sense in context, but then this nice... Sunny Vista in the background, it would have been perfect for them to pick each other up by their ring hands to legitimately, like, give a solidarity sort of deal towards the, these two getting together. But, that, okay, this is this is just nitpicks, that's beside the point. Uh, the legitimate conflicts that I had is that I was honestly really involved in the first season of the show when the majority of it was based around Gundam, High School, Magical Girl Utna revolutionary girl Utna style duels to spice up the Gundam formula and bring more people into the fold, which to be fair, the success of this show can't be understated because the amount of Gundams that have been sold at least through 2022 previously since this show started airing had a much bigger impact than previous years prior, considering that the majority of the stuff that Gundam is able to get with that Gundam is able to get away with, especially with the products, can mostly be based on the sales of their Gunpla and their builder kits and everything that is revolved around them. If there is a huge success about this, then for sure. Witch from Mercury has definitely passed that with flying colors, considering that their model kits have been flying off the shelves. But yeah, I will admit that once Gundam started becoming Gundam again in the second season, which was mostly revolving around the politics and around the Earthen and the Spatian conflict, which I honestly believe that they did a really good job with in the first season. It definitely started moving away from the rest of it, and if you're trying to get us involved in a cast of characters that numbers more than two dozen, that has several minutes of screen time, and you're only going to give us 24 episodes to try and wrap everything up with them into a nice tight bow, you're not necessarily going to have the opportunity to get a lot of success out of that. Because there were so many other characters between the rest of it that didn't necessarily go through. It was kind of funny in the sense that Towards the end of this second season, Gwell and Saleta actually had to have a duel for Gwell to just, okay, fine, but you have to duel me to win her hand back. And they just put on fencing gear in the middle of the hallway as Mirina just down the hall is having a mental breakdown through all the failures and the way that she's been used as a pawn to get the pieces of Quiet Zero into space. And they're just like standing in the hallway fencing just to figure out who's going to take her hand. It's like, oh my god, this is... There's rushed, and then there's legitimately, oh yeah, no, I just conveniently have this fencing gear for two people. You want to get this out of the way now so we don't have to jump into the robots <laughs> like we've done so many times before? It's like, okay, sure. Um, but then, yeah, it was, I will admit, the fact that it was a more of an anime Gundam in the first season than a regular Gundam in the second season, that was definitely one of the reasons why I kind of pertain to the rest of it. I still need to look at Calabar, and I still need to look at... Gun of the Origin. I still have not gotten into any of the main lines. It's just been bits and pieces for me that have been like sampling the Gun of the Universe before I've uh, jumped into it for too long, considering that I've done Unicorn, I've done Witch for Mercury, I've done Thunderbolt in the middle of this, which I know has legitimately no bearing whatsoever. I am going through uh, Fighter G Gundam <laughs> while I'm on the cycle at the gym, which is honestly a really phenomenal way to go through and keep the pace up. But Gundam, because of its stature and its legacy over the past 30-plus years, honestly closer to 40, it is still something that's going to take me a little bit, and I'll bit and piece my way 
through the majority of this franchise as the years go by, but at the very least, I enjoyed Witch from Mercury. Really wish it could have had another season, considering that it felt like the new party that they that it seemed like they could get into a fight with for 10 episodes had the opportunity to show themselves, but it's like, no, we're just going to shut you down, and we're going to give in to your demands, and then everything's going to be hunky-dory. So not necessarily much that you can go along there, but uh, yeah, what can you do? Um, but now jumping from a gay to a straight relationship in the making, um, Insomniacs After School, I would say it definitely uh, was able to not necessarily like pass any expectations or go through the rest of it, it's an enjoyable manga, which got turned into a very enjoyable adaptation to push it forward. I'm glad I got to relive this series and this season, at least with the budding relationship of our duo. It was, you know, enjoyable. It was a really nice and enjoyable start towards the rest of it. Towards the end, I was really curious to see how they were going to like move forward with the big, just blow-up confrontation towards the end of the series, but the fact that they just... Mo like just blew over that huge conflict that was going through and would have acted as a really good bridge and a cliffhanger to know that this series would have been probably getting a second season which we have which they didn't and legitimately we have no idea if it's going to get a second season or not if i had to guess then it's going to be years and years and years before they even have the attempt or even try with an opportunity to go through and continue the story because the ending of the final episode was kind of just like a way to breeze over all the potential ending conflicts and then we just got a snippet of every single main character that we got to see over the course of these 13 episodes it was kind of like something where it's just oh yeah no well i was grounded and we're not going to see each other for the rest of the summer break even though we legitimately had the opportunity to stay in a house with each other solo for just under a week and had more than enough time to spend together and we had a phenomenal time just expanding and moving forward in our relationship which was honestly great if anything it was glad for me to finally have the opportunity to see shiromaru animated she is a phenomenal piece and like i want her life for sure she is legitimately living right next to where she works she's in the middle of the countryside yes her living quarters is literally just a outfitted storage container but considering that it has working utilities it's got electricity it's got running water it's got a gas line it's got a good enough bed and it's not necessarily and she can still invite two people inside of this storage container and still have more than enough space to move around. She's got storage, she's got a working kitchen, space, a tele not necessarily a television, I don't believe, but she still has the electricity. And if you can just make that work on a monitor with your computer, dude, you are just set for life. I was incredibly jealous to see her set up animated. And to be fair, there's not really a lot that I can say that I really, really loved about the series, but I can't necessarily say anything bad about it either. It was just an enjoyable watch to kind of go through and see how the rest of this was going to be animated, because there wasn't really a lot outside of the final three episodes that really gave me a reason to go through. It was nice seeing the relationship develop between these two, but outside of it, it was just a nice, slow-paced show, to go through the rest of it and give you a couple of tidbits of information whenever it comes to stargazing. So, Shiromaru, one of the best girls of the season. Outside of that, it was an enjoyable time, and hopefully a couple of years down the line, we'll have the opportunity to go through and see them move forward together. Hmm. Now, hmm. Oshinoko. This was definitely a mixed bag. Elevated, not necessarily like really tall and deep hills and valleys, but it is definitely something that never really lived up to what the first episode, and by first episode, I mean first four episodes, because that was just, like, an extended movie that you could you could probably, like, put that in theaters, and it would be, like, one of the best pilots. Like, like compared to at least hour-long debuts inside of the West and, out like, inside of Europe, like, this could be, like, a really good setup, and honestly, one of the best hour-plus pilot episodes I've ever seen for a show. And considering that I had only read the first chapter of the manga when it came out, and then completely let it go because I thought the concept was so ridiculous and out there that I couldn't necessarily keep up with it, I decided to wait and give it the opportunity and watch the anime whenever it decided to come out. The look into, like, if there's something that uh, Aka Akasaka is good at, it is monitoring modern trends and pieces inside of the industry that he works around to at least go through and give a layman's term and bare-bones idea to figure out what 
different sections of the entertainment industry are like, which, to be fair, I'm trying to think of, like, how many we even got. We ended up just getting, you know, teenage reality TV. We got a very, very, very basic look into the idol industry. And then we have child actors and a little bit of YouTube, which was nice. Um, Meme is a, is a great gal to be around, and so she's always, like, a good bundle of chaotic energy whenever she's on screen. But it was just a... Nothing really lived up to the potential of the first episode. A lot of people ended up liking Kana. The main two are basically... It's tough, considering that Aqua, who was a main character in his own right, a little creepy in his own right as a doctor, but he was his own character who then died and rebirthed, and now I can't necessarily even think of him as his own character. Like, he, he is just a piece of the story, incredibly deadpan, and is only moving the plot forward. But it's just that it's from his perspective that the majority of the dialogue and the narration and the info comes from, and Ruby herself is weird because I guess you can give her a blank slate, considering the life that she lived before, but... She legitimately, it's its more like they're setting her up for such a great fall that we can't really expect her to do anything else but just be a happy, bubbly, like, mess for the rest of it. It's like the entire premise that happened in the first episode didn't necessarily happen, and then she's just a regular teenage girl idol fan who wants to become an idol herself. Kana was nice considering that Aqua's connections to every other character in... The, like, he, he's basically just our connective tissue. He's not a character in of himself. He's just a way for us to go from industry to industry to kind of get a good idea on how the inner workings of this goes around, which is definitely why Kana was able to go through and be a standout towards the rest of the cast. Uh, loved Mencho, love loved Akane showing her strengths, considering that initially she was given to be this very, you know, lower end of the rung, struggling, aspiring actor, but then you show her passion and her dedication and her obsessiveness, as long as she has a specific thing to latch onto, where she wasn't good at in a reality section, but if you give her a character and you give her something to embody, she is insane and ridiculously motivated to bring that specific character to life. So she is a phenomenal piece through the rest of that. The supporting themselves was, yeah, it's a fine look. I was hoping that it would be less interpersonal and connected, connected drama and more of a look into the background of the industries themselves, which to be fair, it did a relatively decent job, but I'm curious to see how this is going to be moving forward in the second season as we get more and more pieces of the puzzle added since we only ended up getting one step and one answer to the long question, which is thankfully going to lead into a couple of others. But yeah, at, at the end of the day, Oshinoko was a good show and I can't wait to watch the second season. The only negative thing I can say about it is that nothing after the first episode was able to reach the same heights and live up to the same energy and promise that it was given to us. So we're just going to have to wait and see how the rest of the other seasons pan out. Uh, Ranking of King, season... 1.5 uh treasure chest it's there's not really a lot that i can say about this considering that it was a lot more shorter than i would have expected on top of everything else considering that it's just a intermediary sort of deal i haven't really seen a second season like this which which is why i call it season 1.5 you can't even call this a second season because out of the 10 episodes that they gave they only introduced about two episodes worth of new content, and then the other eight episodes are just intermediary stories and fleshing out the other characters that we get around the world. The only reason why I didn't... The only reason why I wasn't so ticked off about this was because this is Ranking of Kings. This is a phenomenal show. Like, this is one of my favorite pieces of fantasy to come out of the anime medium, considering that the majority of the stuff that we get is mostly revolving around Isekai. My buddy, who was a huge Isekai fan, like, normally just puts this and made this so far up because it's just kind of like, oh yeah, no, this is what good fantasy is. It's a storybook aesthetic, and it still has those very naive and optimistic looks, but it's set in the middle, regardless of the art style, set in the middle of this medieval fantasy where it is Wars against class, wars against kingdoms, wars against gods, wars against factions, civil wars trying to change the fabric of the society and the world that it governs. 
It is a ridiculously well-put-together world that we've only scratched the surface towards, as there were bits and pieces that we weren't able to figure out to the end of the first season, especially considering Oaken and how uh, he was able to change. As there is more than enough setup to kind of see where the rest of the series is going to go, because we know that we are going to be getting a movie as the next sequel piece towards the rest of this series. And I legitimately can't wait to see this. If I had to guess, I mean, if they've announced that this has already been in production, then maybe it'll come in Japan, uh, maybe it'll come out in Japan towards the end of 2024. But at least for the rest of us here, we're probably not going to be able to get a screening out of the West until early 25. So at this point, because of the quality of the show, I will wait as long as it takes. All I need to know is that we have a guaranteed piece and a guaranteed sequel that is going to be coming out later in the future, and I honestly can't wait to see how they will be able to expand this world even further. Okay, moving into Farmland Saga, or Vinland Saga Season 2. This was, same deal, like everybody else, um, a slower start than they would have expected. My expectations were on the floor, considering that everybody had been talking about it to the point where it's like, okay, get ready for Farland Saga, get ready for being on a farm for the entirety of the season, and even though there is a lot of violence and there is a lot of potential threat when they show in that they show in the opening, it is not even close to being that prevalent inside of this season. I really did enjoy how they were able to push forward and move Thorfinn, who was now an empty blank slate without any hatred left in his heart, but without the hatred that drove him toward in the first season of the show, he's now just empty. He has no purpose, he has no drive, he has no motivation to do anything else besides just cut trees, live his life through slavery, and try to figure out something that will be able to get him to live again. I'm glad that through the rest of this season, he was able to find that answer, but there weren't many other characters that I was particularly invested in. Anar was... I, I, I understand that Anar is now like a brother to him, and he was the legitimate uh, cause for his motivation and for him to press forward and try to become something more, but I was more curious about the, uh, the past of the other characters of the show. I was curious about how a seasoned veteran warrior like Snake was able to go through and just live his days out on as a regular security guard for some farmland. It seemed like there was more story to be had with the warriors that had essentially moved on to greener pastures towards the rest of the story, but we basically only got Thorfinn's conflict, which to be fair, I still think this is definitely a better show to be binged rather than week by week. I was going through this at one and a half times speed because I knew that most of this was just going to be talking and introspection and debates over conflict and war and famine and families and through the rest of it. So it was a good drama for sure. That That is something that I'm going to go through. Even though I understood that it was a slow pace and I knew what I was getting into as a drama, this was a really good sequel to what we were able to get, and pushing forward on how the rest of Thorfinn's journey is going to go, considering that everything I've heard about Vinland Saga's manga that is still ongoing, but whether it's between conflict, whether it's between pacifism, whether it's between traveling to new lands, this story itself still has not dropped, and it still hasn't degraded in quality over the course of its run. So... Mappa will probably still hold on to this and be moving forward with this as another one of the projects. It'll probably still be a while before we get anything else towards Thorfinn and the rest of his adventures, but considering what they were able to go through and the conflicts that he was still able to move through without resorting to violence, he did a very impressive job reinventing himself and becoming a better character as well as a better person for it. And so it was like a very... It, it, I don't think this was my favorite show of the season. I just think that Skip and Loper... I just think that Skip to Loper was the most consistent show throughout the rest of the season. And Skip to Loper was one of those series where they do the best job because they just come out of nowhere. There is no expectations for them. Nobody's hyping anything up. Everybody is just saying, oh yeah, no. A couple of random people 
watched the first couple of episodes and like, hey, this is, you know, nice. This is cheery. This is fun. This is down to earth. Like, it's a very simple story. Girl from the boonies ends up going to school in the middle of the urbanite life of Tokyo and to see how she adapts and makes new friends and reacts to the new conflicts and the new school and the new environment that she's been put into. And so the fact that it was still able to stay consistently positive, not necessarily just positive and optimistic, but just being able to see the better in people and just looking past the facades that a lot of people put on inside of these school settings and then just getting to the basis of it considering that, you know, Mitsumi is just, she doesn't really care about the rest of it. She's very blunt, she's very honest, and regardless of the masks that everybody around her puts on, she's still able to slowly but gently peel those layers off to get people more in tune and confident and just feel more at home with themselves. And so that kind of energy that she brings around is so infectious, and even though she is a very basic person with very, not necessarily basic goals, but a legitimate drive to see why she would go all the way over to Tokyo from the boonies, you want to root for her and to see her succeed in not only her personal relationships and her familial relationships, but inside of the relationship that she builds with the school as a whole. And like that's the only that's the main thing that I would put it above everybody else to the rest of it. I mean, Vinland Saga season two was very consistent as it was a very, very slow burning drama. Ranking of Kings was just you ended up getting a lot of random stories all over the place, but you still, at the end of the day, ended up like one or two episodes out of the season, getting something that you were looking forward to and a way to progress the story. Oshino Ko was the biggest burning star at the beginning of this season, and then was just it leveled out to a like a much more above average show towards the rest of its contemporaries. And Gundam ended up, you know, hopping back and forth between the rest of its between dynamic mecha battles, capitalistic politics, as well as the school setting, which they almost ditched entirely, which is kind of it. So Skip to Loafer, because of the way that they were able to maintain a relationship with its characters and its viewership and just stay the course with that kind of vibe and that kind of atmosphere in mind was just a welcome experience every single time a new episode came out during the week. It's not necessarily a show that I would be shouting from the rooftops to recommend to people and to go through, because it's there's so many other things that take priority. There, It shouldn't be something that should be at the top of your backlog or at the top of your waitlist or something that now that it's over, you can immediately go through and binge it, because it just wasn't that kind of show. It was just a really nice, calm, and relaxing snippet throughout the course of the week that whenever it was coming back, it's like, oh yeah, no, that's nice. Skipped the Loper episode today. Oh, that'll be cool. I'll just watch that at my own pace, then I'll just, whenever I want to go through towards the end of the day, I'll just throw it on and have a good time. So if you are legitimately out of things to watch and you want something that is not necessarily a slow burn, but it is a very optimistic way to see characters build relationships regardless of their standing and regardless of where they came from, then yeah, I would definitely go through and give Skip to Loafer a watch if you're looking for that kind of vibe. Whew, that was that was quite the season though. Like that, considering that I mean, we did have fall of twenty twenty one. That was a ridiculous showing. I mean, we did have fall of twenty twenty two. That was a ridiculous showing, considering the amount of projects that came out uh, over the course of that season. But then, yeah, it's normally every fall and every spring that you see a lot of these heavy hitters either revving up their engines again, or being the conclusion to a second core, or just being a conclusion to a shorter story. And we are now already in the middle of the summer 2023 season, and at this point in time I've only got five shows lined up in comparison to the 11 that I was able to go through and complete here. So yeah, I've got a lot of things on my backlog that I need to catch up on, so... For me, that's definitely what I call summer and winter. They're definitely the backlog seasons because, yes, you'll have a handful of shows for you to keep up with, but there is a lot of more time for you and a much better opportunity to go back and kind of, like, see. It's just, okay, well, I put that on my backlog, like, four to five years ago. I think I should probably get to that at some point. So, yeah. It is the double-edged sword of anime where there is now 50-plus shows coming out every season, more than 200 every year. And finding the time to not only look back into the past and find those little nuggets and those diamond-in-the-rough shows that essentially made the anime industry and the medium itself what it is today, 
but then to try and keep up with something a lot more trendy and topical towards the rest of it, it's, it has definitely become a lot more difficult nowadays, especially leading into the 2020s. Now that, not necessarily that the COVID hump is over a lot of the production schedules, there are still bits and pieces and a handful of shows that are still reeling from its effects, but once we get into the middle of the 2020s, it's just going to keep ramping up, and there's going to be more and more shows and more and more pieces, and not necessarily looking to me to help give you recommendations, but that's definitely what I like to see through a lot of the content creation that gets put out today, because just like the Nostalgia Critic, they have to watch it so we don't have to. Alright, hopefully everybody's able to go through and get endure the summer heat and the blankets of smoke that have been going through the majority of the continent, but yeah, no, that's just summer for you. Not really a lot to look forward to in that regard, but we're just gonna have to wait and see. Okay, cheers, have a good one. Thank you.